All right. Okay, I'm here with um, Kevin McKernan, who has some fascinating stuff to tell us about what I'm going to call peer-to-peer -peer review. I don't know if anybody calls it that, but um, basically you, you're, you're involved in some stuff that's actually really exciting as far as transforming um, scientific research. And what I want to start with is what do you see as the problems with peer review as it exists today? Okay, so um, I've been involved in peer review for over 25 years now. Um, some of my first publications were uh, were back in, I think, well, it was probably 96 or 97 or so. And um, you know, some of these have been in Nature, Science, a lot of those, you know, very, very prestigious journals. And um, my general sense on it is uh, there's, there, there's several problems if you just look at the metrics of this. And the main metrics is that a lot of the science isn't reproducible. Um, you can look at a variety of studies on this that demonstrate that um, peer review is probably uh, most articles in, in some fields are like 50 to 60 percent reproducible. All right. Um, in the biological sciences, it's closer to 60 percent. I would say in the field that I'm in right now, in the cannabinoid sciences, it's probably a bit higher, mainly because um, there's extraordinarily uh, there's a lot of regulation and challenges in repeating people's work, and so it's it's rarely done. Uh, uh, so that's one issue. The other issue you see in peer review, and for those um, who aren't familiar with peer review, um, well, let me finish the issues, then we'll go back and tell you about the metrics and, and, and how, it, how the gears actually turn in this. Um, the other issue out of reproducibility is that the retraction rates are actually going up, and the retraction rates are actually higher for the journals that have more prestige. So, uh, you know, Nature, New England Journal of Medicine, Science, these are all great journals, but there is a certain vanity to getting articles in there uh, and they tend to um, attract some of the more revolutionary work. And so there's a, there's a higher likelihood that they're going to have overinflated claims uh, in, in papers like that. But um, now the other third problem with peer review is it seems to be taking more and more time. And that's a really important component when we're, when we're working in a, in a field, um, particularly like the field I'm in. I'm in the field of genomics, which has gone through this um, absolutely extraordinary revolution in terms of the capacity to read DNA is getting cheaper, faster than Moore's law, like exponentially faster than Moore's law. And in that scenario, it's really important you can share results very quickly. Uh, but that's actually not the case right now. What you tend to see is the author lists on papers are expanding at a rate that's much higher than the number of reviewers is, is, is the number of reviewers isn't expanding. So the papers tend to be more multidisciplinary uh, and the reviewers always seem to be around three to four reviewers per paper. It becomes harder and harder for those reviewers to adequately review the complexity of 20 authors. Uh, and uh, and so uh, it's much easier to sneak things through the goalie, if you will. Um, now, a lot of this can be explained by the mechanics of it. If you are familiar with the cryptocurrency space or familiar with any of these peer-to-peer uh, -peer markets that you might see, like with Uber or Airbnb, uh, you know, eBay and, and Amazon, many of these things all operate where there's a peer-to-peer -peer reviewing system where if you're out there giving uh, horrible products out there, you quickly end up with very few stars and very poor reviews. And it's, it's fairly fast and, and the world, there's worldwide access to everybody to, to chime in on those things. Um, peer reviews kind of set in stone in the old manners where there was a a printing press and the people who could print these papers needed certain capital. And so there was a third party involved in, in, in reviewing all the work. So um, that third party, I think is worth just, just discussing a little bit as to 
um, are they necessary anymore? What value do they add? Is there a risk of, of corruption and regulatory capture there? And are the economics right? Uh, and we, when you begin to look at this through many of the economics, you start to question, um, is, is this really uh, a peer-to-peer review system or is this uh, a sort of an authoritarian um, uh, system, right? A hierarchy, if you will. Uh, so um, should I hit on, uh, why don't I hit on the, just the economics? Of, uh, of peer review? If, if I think you just answer, maybe, maybe deal with the question of, um, so in your, in your talk in Texas, you talked a little bit about um, sort of laying out how, how something gets reviewed in the system, like how, maybe if you could sort of walk us yes. through this step-by-step step of how does that actually work? Yeah, that's important to know. So uh, you, let's say you're a researcher and um, you, you you have a new finding. You write it up as a paper. You you have to you have to um, uh, describe that you know the, the the work in enough detail for someone to reproduce, and then you submit it to a journal. Uh, and this journal uh, will then they'll review the work. And when they say review the work, they actually send it out to usually three unknown people. Uh, and you do sometimes have a choice of putting a couple names down that may have conflicts of interest, like your direct competitors or, or people who may financially be disinterested in the, in the nature of the data. Um, but you don't have, it's rare that you have visibility on who the actual reviewers are. That's been a bit of a, a really sacred thing to crack. There is a lot of, there are some new journals experimenting with different techniques of, of open peer review. F1000 is one of them I really enjoy. Um, but they're the minority out there. Uh, so you, you submit all of your work to this group. This journal charges you about $5,000 to publish it. Uh, they then force you to sign over the copyright of that material to them so that they can then charge other other scientists $50 to download it or they can sell subscription services to Harvard for a million dollars a year, what have you. Um, all in all, the, the, the publishing industry is thought to be about a $20 billion annual market. About $7 billion of that is um, the paper fees themselves, and the rest of it is probably advertisement and other revenue sources that they can put into the journals. Um, so there, there, there's um, there's one economic thing here that's probably not obvious to everybody is the people that they are giving these papers out to to perform the review are not paid. Okay, so um, the scientists are expected to do this stuff as a form of scientific charity, and I don't have any problem with scientific charity other than many of the the best scientists in the world don't have a lot of spare time to be reviewing everyone else's work. And so it ends up being a job that's done on weekends and nights. Um, When it's done, it's pretty hastily done. And when you're anonymous, you can make pretty hasty reviews very quickly that may not be, um, that may not be as well grounded as the work that's been presented to you. Um, Are there any consequences? Like if, if somebody consistently comes, comes out with, you know, badly done reviews what are the consequences for that? Well, there's there's nothing really that that publicly logs this. So the journals are supposed to be, and they claim to be keeping a register of good reviewers and bad reviewers, but they keep that all private. Um, in fact, there was a case very recently, um, to their credit, where one reviewer for probably a good 10 years or more was constantly forcing people to cite their work. Uh, and they would reject papers unless it cited their work. And on average, this reviewer had like 12 of his papers put into every journal that he reviewed. 
Uh, so he was just trying to boost his own citation scores by doing reviews. So he wasn't being charitable. He was taking advantage of the system to try and up his citation scores. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so this, that type of, um, that, that type of behavior happens when it's not transparent. Eventually he wasn't really caught by the journals. He was caught by a few people who noticed this trend, reported the journals, the journals did a deeper dive on it and realized, wow, he has done this for 10 years and he's now been banned from, from five or 10 different journals. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one side of, of having a, a lack of transparency. Um, so, uh, you know, we've looked at this problem and said, look, you know, sometimes you need to pay for people, people's attention spent. If you want an expert on a problem, uh, you don't immediately run out and ask for, you know, free work. If you, if you want your house reviewed by an inspector, you don't go Googling freeinspectors.com because they might come in six months or they may never come at all. Uh, the same is true with physicians, although the, 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 uh, the medical field is awfully complicated to, to untangle all the incentive structures in there. But uh, arguably, people who have spare time are enriched in the review process, and uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to the best outcomes. Now, you'll probably find a lot of grad students and people in the academic hierarchy that are thrown down the ladder um, the PIs might throw the review jobs to some of them and have them, you know, do the majority of it and they, they oversee it a little bit and then, and then throw the review back. Uh, what we were hoping to accomplish, um, cause we saw a lot of analogies in this, the analogy uh, that resonates with me is this, this looks like an economic ca- calculation problem in the socialist commonwealth, right? You basically have no price signal. So you have no way to mm-hmm. rate good reviewers from bad reviewers. Uh, I would love it if they were like Uber drivers where you could say, yeah, that person deserves a 15% tip or no, they're awful. Uh, and that information gets shared globally and, and they start to build a reputation score and then reviewers start to compete to get higher prices so that they're a highly sought after reviewer in a particular space because they have such a great reputation from doing these other 10 or 15 papers. Their name would actually reside on the paper itself as the person who reviewed it with their comments. Uh, and we are starting to see some journals experiment with this. Um, but, uh, what we tried to do with cryptocurrencies is cut the journals out of the picture altogether because we now had tools where we could put out bounties for reviewers to come and review the work, $500 up front to review it. You had to complete the review in seven days and $500 on, on the return of the review and everything gets transparently put on public on a website and we will use hashes of all that communication and store that information on blockchains to make sure no one can edit it or dispute it at a later date. Uh, and, uh, I was kind of astonished that when, that when we did this, uh, the, the, um, the reaction that we got from the scientific community was mixed. The, the, the young generation loved it, um, because mm. they see the peer review process as something that favors the people who have been in the game for 30 years and know all the editors and ha- already have some credibility built up, but it completely, um, it really suppresses the younger investigator who doesn't have a name for themselves yet. The older uh, reviewers and the older people in the community absolutely hated it. They thought putting mm-hmm. money into science was like bribery. You're just bribing reviewers to say things nice about you, and you can't have money anywhere in the picture. Um, now, that to me is uh, somewhat counterintuitive when you consider all other economic systems in the world. They don't operate this way on demanding the free labor of other people and expecting good outcomes. Um, this, is, uh, this seems to be uh, also what I think is driving uh, the delay in publication, 40% of the, of the people who turn down peer review turn down because they don't have time. Uh, that tells you something. That, that and the people who do I, have time, I, there's a reason they have time. Yes, exactly. 
so we are enriching for this to be reviewed with, on people's bathroom breaks by people who have spare time, who have no vested outcome in throwing crap over the wall. Um, they can hack apart your paper anonymously. They can be your competitor from a from a um, an investigative standpoint. You may not even know. Uh, and they're reviewing it, and they can completely trash your work and send it back into the dustbins of history for six months, and then the world hasn't seen your work. And it seems the other. It seems to me the other benefit of doing this on the blockchain is you're also kind of getting rid of that conflict of interest, the, the potential for conflict of interest, because those those conflicts are out in the open for everyone to see. Whereas now it's it's all done behind closed doors. How do you know? Like you said, how do you know if it's if it's just a competitor or somebody who doesn't want, you know, your yeah. your work yeah, there, out there? Yeah, there, there isn't a, there isn't really a, a judge and a jury in this other than the editor. The editor has to view your comments and their comments, and, and generally after the reviews come back, if you want to contest any of the reviews, uh, it's very rare I've ever seen. Even when reviewers have done outlandish things, it's pretty obvious, and you pointed out to the editor that, hey, this guy is can't even perform arithmetic. He's 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 attacking our, our paper because of simple math errors. You have to you can't listen to this guy. Um, it's it's rare they like to hear that feedback. Yeah. Uh, they kind of want it one and done. Go submit it to another journal. We have to move on to the next one because we only have five thousand dollars in the budget for for organizing this, and we've already spent it. Let's get the next paper for the next five thousand dollars in. So. Wow. Um, I think the real the real thing um, that many of the academics miss on this is is the time delay. Whenever you have like a five or six month peer review process, what does that do to a person approaching that process? Well, they don't want to approach that process with a six month bit of scientific data because the the return on investment of going through review for a small uh, experiment is just way too large. So they wait until the data gets so large, it's two years worth of work, then they sum it up and submit it knowing it's gonna be at least three months in the preliminary review, maybe three more months in fixing up some of the, the, the reviewer's comments, and then six months later it, it publishes. So it suddenly changes the metronome of, of scientific release and, and balloons it to being one of having many, many authors, very, very large scientific projects, uh, and now it begins to centralize where science can be done because uh, you need to have really large scientific teams and large sets of data to publish. You can't leverage millions of independent investigators uh, submitting findings every six months. They have to all hoard their data for two years before they submit. Uh, and that is a real um, dampener on scientific advancement. Um, the, the, it's very, it's very different if you go and look at Twitter with some of the folks in the new generation who want to share their daily lab results every day with one another. And that happens. In fact, oh, you're wow. seeing it right now with this like coronavirus stuff. It's really fascinating to see papers get thrown up on preprints. Um, and we can talk about preprints in a bit, cause they're another reaction to this whole process. Um, and people either criticizing them or amplifying them or silencing them based on what they like or they don't like. Um, but that rate of innovation is extraordinarily healthy. And you'll find the vast, uh, if you do surveys on this, the younger generation loves it and the older generation thinks that, oh, there's too much noise coming out. We need to control the noise. We need to censor Facebook. We need to censor uh, Zero Hedge or deplatform people right. because they're well, promoting. That, that Zero Hedge example, I think, was was really interesting. The one that you pointed out where, um, what was it? Somebody had come out saying that there was HIV DNA yes. in, and it was quickly knocked down on Zero Hedge on their site. People came in very quickly and debunked the claim. Yes, very effectively. 
without any censorship, without some authority coming yes. in and saying. Yeah, and, and so you have to, there, there's people who are like condemning the fact that it's so easy to publish a preprint. They actually attacked a Cold Spring Harbor for the preprint not boldly claiming enough about it being a preprint and that people were misinterpreting this stuff. And so they went up and put up new banners, even though they already had these banners saying this is a preprint server, they put up more banners saying this has not been peer reviewed. But the real peer review already happened. Uh, you know, that, 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 that happened live because you right. had the, the wisdom of the crowds chime in within 24 hours and the people retracted it saying, you're right, we, we made a mistake. Um, Zero Hedge still got banned, but, <laughs> but <laughs> right. well, that, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's unfortunate, but um, that's, uh, that's, that's the rate at which this could be happening. And I think that's a good metronome that, that we want to aim for is how do we get science to run at that rate? We don't need to be in pandemic mode to do that. We could do that every day. We just happen to have probably more people that are paying attention to this because there's more self-interest in it. They're not necessarily being paid to do this, but they worry this coronavirus is going to perhaps hit their family members. And so more scientists are kind of contributing their spare time to reviewing some of this work. Um, all, all we're suggesting is that in times when there aren't pandemics, changing the motivation and the incentive of, of everybody to be online, uh, other incentives could help. And we shouldn't pretend that there isn't money in publishing. There is. It's just the journals are getting it all and the scientists are getting screwed. Uh, the people who are contributing the most amount of quality to the peer review process are the people that aren't getting paid. That's something that I think should frighten anyone who's, who's, who's well-read on Austrian economics or any, any type of economics for that matter. Yeah. Incentives matter. Uh, and they change people's behavior. And you do need to have a time preference because you can imagine... Um, if you have a free market like this, why would there be one fee for every paper? Doesn't that seem kind of silly that it's $5,000 from a paper that, you know, if a paper's talking about like EM cryo versus genomics versus social sciences, they're all $5,000. I, I mean, really, yeah. I, I, yeah. I can't imagine anyone that could price something for everyone. It's something as diverse of all of science that we can review it all for the same price no matter what. Uh, what there really should be is a market so you can say, look, I'm willing to get a platinum review and I'm willing to pay for it. And I'm really sensitive on time. So I'm going to pay 20 grand on the, on the, on the uh, review because I want you to actually reproduce the work as best you can and, and add that to the review. That would be the ultimate like platinum level that, and I've been involved in companies that sell products that have the budget to do that and they would do it in a heartbeat. And I know they would do it because they pay $10,000 a page for an advertisement in science. And what's a better advertisement than wait, wait, forget about, my marketing, this independent person reproduced it in peer review and they spent 20 grand doing it. And here's the experiment they did to replicate a work that speaks far larger volumes than an advertisement. Um, but instead what you're stuck with is waiting for this peer review to finish, which could take, you know, six months and your paper getting out there. Then somebody goes and reproduces it and has to go through the same process again. You know, you're talking about a year or two later before someone has reproduced your work. Um, that could all be compressed greatly with, um, with incentives that could scale. You could also have, uh, papers on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, we did one, excuse me, where, we simply sequenced a genome and put it public. And we wanted to make sure that everyone didn't think we just um, took cat pictures and converted them into ATCs and Gs. We actually sequenced the genome we claim. In this case, it was cannabis, which is fairly controversial and, and hard to get through journals. Um, we can touch on that later too. There's some reasons for that. But 
um, in publishing it, you really don't need uh, a committee to know whether DNA sequence is right or wrong. It, it's something that you just search against a lot of other databases and you can tell that it's right. You can also look at some of the quality scores that come off of the sequencers and run a couple programs on it that look at the number of genes that are present in the genome and how complete they are. And you can more or less algorithmically screen these things and a computer could probably do the review for you. But they instead insist that goes through the same journal. Oh, and wow. many of the journals aren't really receptive to you just saying, uh, oh, we just sequenced a genome. We didn't do anything beyond that, but we think it's important everyone has it so no one else bothers to waste their time doing the same thing over again. They can use this reference and move from there. But they want that um, process to go through a much longer review. No, no, no longer is it easy to just publish a genome. They want you to like count all the genes, run RNA experiments, uh, compare it to 10 other genomes, and then maybe it's, it's publication grade. Other than that, in fact, we, we did submit this to a preprint when we had just sequenced it, threw it up on servers and didn't do much analysis you know, beyond that. Uh, and they said, no, this looks like a, a genome uh, announcement. It's an advertisement. Uh, and they rejected it from a preprint server. Uh, and so we're like, well, that's bizarre. We're giving away free data on a genome that's the most valuable human crop on earth. And you're censoring it because you're saying it's not enough. Who, who gets to say it's not enough work? Uh, if it's, it's, it's public data. Um, so there, there's games like that that go on. And I think the world needs to live in a scenario that moves at a much rapid, much more rapid clip and has more flexibility in the type of review that's done. Um, you can pick you know, algorithmic review versus complete full-blown reproduction if you could allow a pricing signal to get in there. Uh, this is the same thing Uber does. You have a variety of different drives and cars that you can get the, the pooling car for the cheapest or you can get the luxury one that costs more. Uh, and that accommodates much more of the market and tends to division, you know, divide the labor up much more intelligently than, than what we're doing now. So how does, um, and for a general audience, people who are not maybe not familiar with how the blockchain works or crypto at all, how does moving this to the blockchain change the whole peer review system? Well, um, there's a couple things that it, it, it brings uh, um, synergistically. I mean, there's the, the blockchains help in, um, if you need to globally put a bounty out for reviewers all over the world, you don't want to be dealing with uh, currency conversions and all that. So you can, you know, you can put bounties out in, in Bitcoin or in Dash, and then people can figure out how to exchange that currency into their own currency uh, through you. So it's a very great way of, of recruiting people's help um, internationally, that's frictionless. Um, you might be able to do this with PayPal as well, but you can't do it in Iran. Uh, we've got folks in Iran that are publishing on cannabis right now, and I can't work with them. Um, so there's, there, there's all those types of friction points. When you get involved in, in industries that are controversial, like cannabis, suddenly banking law has a very oppressive um, feel on it. Right, so that, that's, that's one detail. It's much easier to do the economics of these things internationally if, if you have um, blockchains. Uh, the second thing that it helps to serve as is as just a uh, a ledger that can't be edited. Um, so let's say I post a version of this genome up online. We actually did this. I can take a hash of that file. I can spend it into the op return of Bitcoin or Dash. That's the field inside the transaction that can carry metadata. And that's now a fingerprint of, that a file existed at a certain time. Now, no one can test the fact, can contest the fact as who sequenced this first. Um, this, there's a transaction on Bitcoin that can never be erased that has this particular Jamaican lion genome that was published on August 2nd, 2018. This is kind of an interesting story because when we put that public, 
five days later, another group downloaded it, published a different cannabis genome and never referenced it. Uh, and we have all of that on record that uh, they, 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 they acknowledged receipt of it, that, oh, that's great, congratulations. Four, four or five days later, they submit a paper uh, to Genome Research that mentions nothing about that genome uh, other than to claim that their genome was the best, even though it was lower <laughs> quality than the one we gave them. Uh, and they just ignored that it existed as if it, there was no record of it. Wow. Um, and you can get away with that in some fields. Like the cannabis field, the websites you put things on aren't always sturdy. You know, they sometimes get taken down. Um, I'm sure there's other controversial fields of science you're familiar with where stuff gets taken down um, because it goes against uh, large, large investment interests. Um, you have to remember that the people who are paying the vast majority of these journals' revenues are the advertisement agencies. Okay, so those are generally pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies that are paying the advertisement bill for many of the journals. Uh, so there, there's, there's probably some influence there, um, or at least conflict of interest there, that uh, they may dictate what can and can't go uh, into certain journals. Don't have evidence of that. It's just a financial hunch. Yeah. But uh, you're, you're the probably people a good who pay one. bills probably um, have some control over you. Yeah. Um, so in cannabis, uh, you can put things online and they can get taken down or censored or, or pulled down just, just like any other controversial field. In fact, cannabis has been arguably, the, the truth in cannabis has been censored for about 80 years. Um, so... Uh, Another group actually downloaded that data, utilized it, put it into a slide presentation at a Portland science conference where our data was represented in there, giving the statistics on the genome that was sequenced uh, next to theirs. They submitted a paper in October with the same table with that one line omitted uh, of our data, acting like our data never existed. Um, yet there's now blockchain trails of all of this that if anyone wanted to do forensics on this, they can tell exactly who published what, when, and who had access to it when, um, to kind of point these, these shenanigans out. So the blockchains do help in notarizing when things happened. Um, they can also be very helpful building trust between, um, people who are coming, who are doing these reviews publicly. So what we did is we asked the reviewers, the condition of doing the review is you had to have no financial connection to us or if there was anything that was deemed to be a conflict, you would state it, and this would be public. Your CV had to be attached to the review, so everyone knew who you were, whether you were qualified or, or you were a sock puppet, you know, unqualified reviewer. And then all of your comments back and forth to the, to the, the authors, the email chain, would go public. So any questions you asked us about, can you give us more detail here or there, none of it was going to get hidden. It was all going to get put public. Um, and it worked really well. We had, we got reviews back in seven days. I've never had reviews in seven wow. days. Wow. Um, and the reviews are all public. You can go to a, I think we have a page now that has this project that was funded by Dash. Um, and just to give you some perspective on the speed that this occurred. Um, so Dash has, is a, is a fork of Bitcoin or a fork of Litecoin, which is a fork of Bitcoin. But its main difference is that, uh, Bitcoin, the, the, all the inflation rate of Bitcoin, the new currency that's made from Bitcoin all goes to the people who mine the coins. It's mm -hmm. a very good model. It's worked for its best crypto out there. However, some people realized there was a lot of um, contention in getting Bitcoin to change because no one person was necessarily in charge, which is probably a good thing. But that um, change was not um, systems that were that decentralized were completely ossified to change. It was very difficult for them to decide in the block size. It took them two years. Um, Dash thought, okay, maybe there's a different way to do this. We can build a model where 10% of the money goes into a treasury and people who have a lot of stake 
have more say in Dash. They can decide mm-hmm. how to spend that 10%, and maybe that's a better economic model. I don't know which one's going to win in the end. I just know that multiple economic models are probably worth experimenting with right now. And um, this model gave them a treasury at one point, which is close to six or $8 million a month at the peak of their currency, that they were, they were awarding out in grants for a variety of hurricane relief efforts and trying to get the currency into struggling nations that had currency collapses like Venezuela or funding science that they thought might expand the use of their currency. They, they want to try and solve the banking, industry, the banking problems in the cannabis industry. Sorry, you said six to $8 million a month was in the country? That's what they were at the peak when Dash was okay. up at like $1,000. It's probably a tenth of that now that the currency's come down. Um, so maybe yeah. it's 600 K a month now. Um, but, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a reasonable amount of money for, for scientific projects. Now, um, it's rare that they do scientific projects. We might be the only one in there because they really liked the idea that this had a direct impact to people potentially getting into the cannabis market and building some seed to sell tracking systems on blockchains, which is another uh, case um, that they're interested in doing. Um, so, so anyway, we, we put this application in, in, I think it was May of 2018 and in June, every 30 days is a voting cycle. And, uh, by June 3rd, we had the first of five installments because we we said it was going to take us five months to sequence the genome. And, uh, they gave us uh, X amount of dash per month. I'm forgetting what the the amount was, but it was, you know, the total of the project was probably 50 grand in total. So let's say it was probably like 10 grand a month. Um, now, the, the interesting thing about the incentive model is every month you get reevaluated and you can get voted off the island. That oh, wow. totally changes the wow. way you do science yeah. um, because you need to stay communicative with the community that's funding you. I remember when we almost got voted off in the first month, I was doing podcasts like three times a week to try and you know, keep the community apprised. This is what we're doing. We're making progress. This is why it's going to help. Um, so become a little bit more of a spokesperson for the work that you're doing. Um, the other thing that we noticed is if we're going to complete this in five months and put it public, everyone was going to claim fraud if we didn't have some other people view it and say, yeah, they, they didn't just fabricate the data. They actually, this, this checks out. And we knew we couldn't do that in peer review. We couldn't send this to a journal and just hope that they, they would accept it. So we said, all right, we're going to, we're going to save some of the dash to get three reviewers in here. We saved $3,000 worth of dash to put three reviewers to work where they got $500 up front, $500 in the back end to write these reviews in seven days. Uh, and they're phenomenal reviews. And I think the behavior changes when the person knows their name's going to be tied to that project forever. They're not going to write yeah. some like, short one hand, this is garbage, go away. They're actually going to justify um, their work. And what you see in the reviews is it's almost like a paper has been written by each of the reviewers critiquing wow. it with references and with good arguments too. I mean, they, they actually made us rethink and do things differently. Um, so, so that was a really fascinating project. It took five months and we pumped out a genome that was a higher quality than everybody who's using the old system. Uh, they, everyone going through the traditional journals are still dealing with trying to get their papers published in their worst quality than the one we handed to them before they submitted. Um, that shows you the, the rust that's going on in the peer review system. Uh, it shouldn't be that and we're a lab of a couple people who pulled this off like maybe three or four people wow. who basically got this grant raced the sequencing out the door put it public the second we had the assembly together and i think we probably crushed teams of people that were 10 times our size wow um, and it was not really well received as a result of that because everyone thinks we cheated you know we you, mm-hmm. you went through this pre that was osf and it doesn't have any filter on so any crust can get published up and there's no review and then you bribed all your, your reviewers. That's, those are the kind of comments we've, we've, we've heard 
So how do you respond to that when someone says you just you bribed your reviewers? What? How do you come back with from that, to that? I, I tell them that they bribe the journals instead, and they get to, <laughs> they get charged to go back to their data whenever they want to view it. <laughs> so at least our reviews are public for everyone to to scrutinize. And by the way, the genome that we put public, people have already published two different peer review papers utilizing that got through peer review because we put it out in August. Those papers got submitted probably October, November timeframe. Oh, wow. And they published in 2019. So we publishing on our public genome before the other parties had, had, had reviewed uh, genomes completely done. Wow. I think one of them went straight to peer review in August and published actually November like 5th or something. So that was actually a really good review, that a quick review that got done at Genome Research. They're usually the better outfits out there. Um, and then there was uh, another group, I think they're still struggling to get it through that on the same time frame, October 31st, and I've not seen the, the, uh, the finalized uh, paper that so um, there, there's, uh, there's risk in the old approach in that um, you can get scooped, but um, there is a very high tendency for people who are submitting through the old process where there's only three reviewers you have to snow and, and, and no one knows who they are. Um, that process of uh, citation center where they tend to cite their competing parties that might have data that makes their data not look first or not look as novel. They tend to hide that because that means the journal's not going to see it as being as novel as it is. And so the most relevant work tends to have more citation censorship than um, the work that's kind of related. Uh, and I think we felt that that directly that came out, even though our genome was prior to theirs, both of them omitted our data from it intentionally. And we've got evidence of it being a very intentional omission. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not good for sharing science. I mean, I mean, what, this is an ethos that kind of infected me on the Human Genome Project. I worked on that from 96 to 2000. And we signed onto this thing known as the Bermuda Accord. Every, every day, every 24 hours, we would put data public. If you were working for, you know, at this time, it was a government-funded agency. It was the end. Um, the data would go public every 24 hours. And the reason for that was so that the person in Japan didn't bother wa- wasting their time sequencing the same region. It was the only way to synchronize yeah. and reduce redundancy of work. Um, what's uh, since then, is uh, there's been uh, there's been less coordination on that front, and so it's easy for people to use other people's data. If you're if you're a more generous person who likes this open science concept and sharing, you tend to get hosed because other people see what work you're doing and then and don't do the preprint process and go straight to the journal to try and get it through peer review before the mm-hmm. reviewers recognize what the state of the art is. And the state of the art is, I think, the numbers I've heard is like the the amount of data is like doubling every four or five months now wow. uh, out there. So it's really wow. hard to stay current on as a reviewer. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's really unfortunate because I really think the right answer is being extraordinarily open as fast as you possibly can and, and trying to instill an ethos in the environment that you should cite unpublished work. You should cite work that has been put public, even if it doesn't have a PMID and has been blessed by all the, the holy central reviewers. Right. Um, because we're seeing that, that that holy central review has its flaws and has all the flaws that you would expect from that Mises would predict out of a socialist commonwealth. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you think that, I mean, it, it seems that, especially with something like coronavirus going on right now, that as people see this happening in real time, as people see, you know, the the sort of sharing environment as opposed to the old stodgy um, non-sharing environment that 
they'll see, they'll recognize the speed with which things can get done this way and be more, do you think, do you think it's going to open more people's eyes to the possibility of, you know, it it goes two ways. Um, in, in many ways, folks who go, so I dropped out of my PhD, um, twice actually. Uh, I was, I wasn't, I was, I was enrolled, but I took only a couple classes, uh, as a, there was a UW, I was going to go with Lee Hood and UW, and then this human genome race happened with Craig Venter, and I got convinced to stay at MIT and take some courses there as a special student uh, towards a PhD, and I just never had the, the stamina to, to continue, and I got, I got pulled into some startups, which was a better move. But I think when you're involved in that, um, in that PhD process, you very much become a product of hierarchy. Um, you become... Uh, you, you know, you're, you you spend six or seven years there, more or less being the lab slave of a PI. And um, at the end of uh, your, your your tenure there, um, I shouldn't call it tenure, but the end, end of your stay there, uh, you tend to promote that science has to be done a certain way. And you can't just post things online that could be wrong. That's going to create all the people out there are dumb. Remember, they're all dumber than you. And so all the other people can't have the truth. We have to filter the truth. Uh, and that's the ethos in, in academia, unfortunately. And I'm not going to say all academia. It's, it's a, broad, a broad brush. But you don't have as many free market thinking people in there, that, that the spontaneous order is actually far more productive than some type of central plan. And so you get a, a bunch of folks who will generally say, no, we need to have a truth officer or a truth czar who looks after all of this stuff. Uh, and uh, that way we can get rid of these climate hoax people or these anti-vax people or all of these people they deem less than them that are dumb. That's, that's unfortunately the way they view because they've spent seven years getting smart, right? And, and no mm-hmm. one else has. So they're wasted all that money. Yeah. Everyone else was just, you know, playing video games and shoving rocks up their nose, but they were studying. Right. Um, so I think that infects the, the academic, um, um, ethos quite a bit because it's very much structured that way, that there are high prestige journals or high prestige universities. There's um, only so many positions in the lab and, and some people get, uh, get put on these tenure tracks and some don't. And so it does breed this, this thinking that we need to have some person with a bullhorn that's in charge. I think other people that are more business oriented tend to recognize that, um, you know, business is successful because you usually, you're finding win-win relationships with other people in the world. It's not that you're getting rich because someone else is getting poorer. It's that you found, you did something of value and someone else recognizes that and swaps with you. And, and there's a lot of subjective value theory that goes under this. Some people might value what we do differently than somebody else because of their circumstance of time and preference and place, right? Um, you might like blue cars, I might like pink cars, right? I'll pay a different price for a different color because of, of uh, th- these types of preferences. But they can't be objectively valued. They can only be subjectively valued. So when you look at an economic system that way, you recognize that the, the network effect is extraordinarily powerful. The more people you know, the more that you interact with, the more likelihood you are to find win-win relationships that you can maximize. And in that exchange, both parties profit. That's not something that's taught in, in, um, in most schools. It's mostly taught that you're wealthy at the cost of other people being poor. You're the top 1%, therefore you've starved these other people and need to give something back. Um, they don't recognize that uh, the larger we make the economy, the more people that are in it, the more people that are interacting, the more likelihood there is that win-win re- uh, relationships are going to be discovered and wealth gets generated that way by, by more people getting moved out of poverty concurrently in the last 50 years than, than all of human history. That doesn't happen uh, concurrently with population growth unless this type of effect is happening. You can't 
grow the population and grow GDP at the same time in a zero sum game scenario. It has to be about networks. And so the business minded folks, I think, see that hierarchy doesn't win. Hierarchy tends to make bad decisions and you need to decentralize and distribute creativity so that a thousand different ideas are in the race uh, and, and a couple of those emerge as the winners. And, and, and this very much mimics evolution in Darwinian theory as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you, you need to have constant mutation rates out in the gene pool and some of those are going to be very beneficial mutations that rise, but it's really difficult to predict and command and control them from up front. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is what kind of failed the whole eugenics movement, right? Is they thought they knew what was <sighs> the best human and they didn't recognize we're in a globe that has, uh, you know, millions of different environments and different, uh, different influences that there's no such thing as the perfect human race. The, the most perfect human race is a diverse one uh, that has many different experiments going on at once. So, um, I, I get two reactions and that's what I kind of saw on, on this whole COVID thing was all these people saying we need to censor Facebook now because all this misinformation is coming out of Facebook and we need to shut it down because it's spreading panic or it's spreading fear. It's spreading conspiracy theories. We need a truth czar. Well, that's Pence right now. Good luck with that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah. you can see the same thing that happened at the CDC, right? The CDC was panicked that, if everyone did testing, it'd be too confusing. Right, so right. And now no one can do testing. No one can do testing uh, because the CDC had to do it. And so now the epidemic's here and it's too late to get the test running. It's going to spread before the tests go live. Right. Well, uh, it's the only, the, the people who've actually gotten it there. Did you hear about the people up in Washington, in Washington Yeah, State? there's a couple of them up there. Yeah, because they were able to do it, I think, under On academic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they, they yeah. were able to get around the, the sort of pr- whatever the prohibition is on on you know, selling tests e, or bringing tests to the public. Okay. It's EUA. Yeah. And this is the emergency youth authorization. So it should be really clear that that's an exception to even more burdensome regulation. And they had to get around the exception to the more burdensome regulation. Right, right. But they managed to do it. So, you know. Yes, they did it under a research use only, what, what we call RUO in the space. Okay. That's the umbrella okay. of, of having the, hopefully the freedom. But let's. Uh, I want to make it clear to people that that doesn't mean anyone can go and do it. Right. That means you still have to be a high complexity CLIA laboratory. I've gotten CLIA licenses before, and it probably took us four or five years to even get New York going. Um, New York's probably the hardest state to get CLIA uh, uh, approval for. Um, they take, uh, you probably can't get a CLIA lab going for less than one or $2 million, uh, to, at least in the genomic space. I can't say that for every space, but the genomic space requires certain equipment and, and getting the CLIA license means you got to have somebody with like an MD on, on staff that signs off in every single report. Um, and how and much how much of that cost is like a legitimate cost of what you would need to operate, and how much of it is just complying with the regulations? Uh, it's uh, probably the actual cost of the test is two to five percent of the actual cost of the test. So it's about ninety five percent regulation burden on this. Wow. And and the the evidence is in Seattle. Seattle right now is charging two hundred dollars for a PCR test for for COVID nineteen, and that test the reagents are probably under five dollars, um, maybe ten. Uh, and that's if you do it once. But once the PCR is one of these things, when you start to scale it to do thousands to hundreds of thousands, it, the cost of it plummets instantly as, mm-hmm. you, as you get to um, larger volumes. So wow. I will be, as the case volume goes up, I would be surprised if that $200 test price moves much because the part of the, that actually scales and gets cheaper, the reagents, is such a small proportion of the actual burden of carrying out those tests. The burden right. of carrying out those tests is having the overhead of a CLIA laboratory, laboratory oversight managers, um, MDs and PhDs on, on staff, and then being able to fill all the paperwork all the time. 
uh, uh, for for um, for keeping compliant with those things. So right. um, that's that's with them getting out of most of the exceptions. Right. Uh, that's right. the thing. So that, if you want to run this through insurance, at a zero. <laughs> As with everything else, um, yeah. Getting back to what you guys did to your to your cannabis strain, so can you say a little bit about um, why, how you got this particular plant, and why you decided to do that? And what what I'm one of the things I'd like to talk about a little bit is the whole patent issue, oh, and yeah. the implications for what you guys did on this patenting of of certain strains of the cannabis plant. Okay, so this is um, this is a controversial topic because I can't say this with strong confidence because the precedent in the cannabis industry really hasn't been set. A lot of people are on the sidelines. Um, they're afraid to utilize cannabis patents when it's still federally illegal because the courts might throw out the case. So a lot of people mm -hmm. are getting cannabis patents, praying for legalization events, and then there's gonna be a huge fight. Um, so we don't really know how the courts are going to view this, but I have some history in the patent space. I've got a lot of patents in my name, um, embarrassed to say, uh, but when you're in startup mode, it's almost impossible to get startups off the ground without them. It's, it's just a currency in the space. Uh, people won't yeah. invest in, 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 in your business if you don't have an IP plan. Um, I, Stephen Kinsella speaks about this a lot and I really like his work because, uh, you know, he's a patent attorney and he doesn't quit his job because he doesn't like patents. You know, you, right. you have to play the game you're forced to play. Yeah. Um, so in this case, there was a patent that was filed by a company called Biotech LLC. Um, I know some of the people involved in this. They're very good people. So I don't want anyone to go dox them or give them death threats. They have claimed to have had death threats for this patent. So um, ease off. They're good people that did this. Uh, they're playing the game too. But like any good attorney, uh, the attorneys, when they see your invention, always say, okay, we're going to write claim language like this. And you're like, wait a minute. That's not what we did. You're like, don't worry. That's just the language we have to first start with. The, the USPTO is going to come back and push back on this, and we're going to narrow the claims. But you always start big, grab as much as you can, and then see what the patent office shrinks it to. Sometimes in fields where the patent office isn't very well versed, you get away with it, and you get really broad claims. And that's what I think happened here, is that the attorneys mm -hmm. went for land grab, and they got it. Um, now, what they, what they patented, they used a utility patent. There's a variety of different ways to get IP on plants. You can get plant patents, which are known as they call them PPs. Um, plant patents only cover asexually reproduced plants, so they have to be perfect clones. Really easy to get around, not a threat, completely you know, support those. If you're going to support any form of IP, uh, which I don't think uh, is really supportable in any libertarian theory, but if you have to, plant patents are benign. Um, uh, because all you have to do is do one breeding step in your way, and they do give the people who, who kind of crafted that strain, I wouldn't say invented it, but crafted it, um, some rights from people copying or cloning the plant and running off with, with your work. Okay, those are benign. Utility patents are much broader. And uh, in this case, the patent is on our website and the claims are listed as any patent that, or any plant that has, that makes both CBD and THC and has, and doesn't have myrcene as the dominant terpene, okay? Uh, and so what the breeders thought they did is they thought they're the first people to ever breed a plant that made both CBD and THC and had like limonene as the dominant terpene, right? Myrcene is a terpene that makes people sleep. It's a very sleepy terpene. And so they thought they found a cannabinoid, a plant that made cannabinoids that wouldn't couch lock you and might be desirable. Now, 
it turns out the breeders that are doing this work are actually some of the most exceptional breeders in the space. They're very good at what they do, but it wasn't the first of that flavor. That flavor has been around, just poorly documented. It may, it may have been, um, in fact, there's evidence of it in some high times journals of plants that did that. There's some cannabis cups that people won, but these are now all websites that aren't readily searched by the USPTO because they have RU over 21 on them. And a lot of their web crawlers that look for um, information probably stop at that paywall or at that age wall and say, all right, I'm not searching that site because it's, it doesn't, I, I can't crawl it as effectively. Um, or they're just unfamiliar with the terminology. It's a new space and uh, it's not necessarily written in the language that the U.S. Patent Office tends to see. When they see plants, they tend to like to see a genotype of the plant and maybe some scientific terms. And the way people describe cannabis strains probably aren't in any of those vocabularies. <laughs> Um, you know, they probably describe them in terms of effect. So these strains we've, we realized had evidence that predated the filing of this patent, which is in 2013. So we reached out to some growers and decided to sequence a plant that fit the description of the patent to put it public and just demonstrate that, hey, this, this won a cannabis cup in 2011 and the grower claims to have evidence back to 2007 and it fits the description that are in these claims. It predated this and was public prior to the filing. Maybe it's, maybe it's prior art. Um, that's public now. I don't know if it's ever going to get challenged and anyone's going to bring that data forward. It's not our business model to do that. We just wanted a reference and we figured we, at the very least, if they decided the patent was still valid and this was some other strain, if, you're, if your breeding program produced strains that were more like the reference than like theirs, then you were probably in, in safer harbor than you would be if you were working with a strain that was closer to theirs. So we wanted to build at least a statement that, hey, this is where things were, we believe, in 2007, and this is the reference genome everyone's comparing to. This one's open, and there aren't patents on it, and uh, you can compare your strain to this one and make a call as to whether or not you are closer to it or further away and closer to theirs. Um, in the end, attorneys are going to probably have to judge all that. Um, we're not here to, to get in any legal fights. We're just here to provide open source tools to hopefully uh, make this market move a little bit faster. Um, some people have accused us of being IP communists for doing this, that why are you putting everything open and harming people's ability to file patents and patents are the key to innovation. And if you are putting everything public, you're ruining people's capacity to get IP and to rate and start businesses and, and you're tearing stuff down as opposed to helping other people build things. Right. I've heard that a lot. Um, that stems back to some of our history on the Human Genome Project. When we sequenced um, the human genome, I don't know if anyone remembers this race, but Craig Venter and, and Francis Collins got in this very large race where the public sector, uh, public sector being the sector that is funded by the government, uh, was funded a very large sum to sequence the human genome. Uh, towards the end of that project, a new DNA sequencer was invented by Applied Biosystems, and they decided to create their own company to sequence the human genome faster than the taxpayer system because they were just tired of waiting, and they thought they had the tool to get it done in a year. And so they, they announced that they're going to sequence the genome in a year privately and patent 300 of the genes. This created a huge uproar. Uh, even though they said, look, we're only taking 300, there's 30,000. You guys, the rest are going to go public, but we need something to justify this with. Uh, the academic um, community just had an immune reaction over this thing and thought it was the peak of, of crony capitalism and evil. And they, they managed to shake more money out of the tax coffers to accelerate the human genome project. When all was said and done, the NIH held more gene patents than Solera. That's the bitter irony of it. And I worked on the, on the tax funded side of it, getting an ulcer, trying to beat this guy, Craig, 
Mm-hmm. And that gave me kind of a, a, a lesson in that, well, maybe the free market side of this isn't so evil. Maybe the government side wasn't completely honest with itself and the fact that it was patenting these as well. James Watson, who's by no means um, an idol of mine based on some of his um, racist uh, comments lately, uh, he did uh, step down from the Human Genome Project over this. He was the person put in charge and was infuriated that the government was patenting the, pat- patenting the genes. Oh, wow. Uh, and so it was a big controversy. In the end, 20% of the human genome, the genes in the human genome, not, not the genome itself, but 20% of the genes in the human genome were patented by the end of this process. Okay, so this is kind of getting off on a tangent, um, and we may have to do this again to go into other issues, but what does it actually mean to patent a gene that is part of the human genome? The whole, I, yeah. I think... There's a, there, I don't understand that. And yeah. I'm sure there's got to be a lot of misunderstanding out in the world thinking, you know, with people thinking, God, that means, you know, the government owns my genetic makeup. What does it actually mean? So this has been, um, it's, it's good that you brought this up because Myriad is, is, the, is really the focal point of this. Myriad Genetics discovered early on in the course of the Human Genome Project out in Utah, genes related to breast cancer, BRCA1 and 2. And they patented those, and uh, they've been the number one provider of, G- of sequencing that gene ever since. Um, those patents became a, a, a very prominent court case of Myriad versus the ACLU. And uh, is that right? American Civil Liberty? Yeah, ACLU. Um, and through the course of that work, the way the judge cited on this is that their patents got restricted a little bit and that they only could cover man-modified forms of DNA. And the, the reason they pointed this, they, they came to this conclusion was off of precedence with Park Davis. Uh, Park Davis uh, purified adrenaline, and even though that's a natural compound that shouldn't be patentable, if you purify it and do any manhandling of it, you effectively can deem it patentable. So there's the Park Davis precedent. And then there was um, Diamond versus Chakrabarty, which is another lawsuit where someone figured out how to make a microbe that would eat oil. And since it was a natural microbe, but it was human evolved and modified to eat oil, it was deemed an inventive act. And so that microbe became patentable. So they deemed in Myriad that as long as you change or man modify the DNA in some way, uh, it, can be, it can be an inventive act and, that, and then it can be patented. And they decided that Myriad's act of utilizing PCR, polymerase chain reaction, to amplify the DNA out of the, of the genome was an inventive act and in that therefore they could patent that. So they don't really have a patent on your gene. They have a patent on the process of reading your gene. And um, those patents have been substantially weakened uh, in, throughout the years. We, we actually published a paper in Nature Biotech that's worth a read for anyone who wants to learn about this topic. I believe it is the first time Murray Rothbard is ever referenced in a Nature Biotech article. Uh, I think Hayek might be in there as well. But um, this went through the Myriad case work and some work that we did to navigate all these gene patents is we decided that we could play that game too. And if we amplified people's DNA and added in a methylated base instead of a native base, that we could make these segments that we amplified to be different than what was described in Myriad's patents. And therefore, we used the same logic they used to get outside of this against them. So we basically, got, anybody could do that. Sorry? Yes, we, we publish those methods, um, okay. and they're in ones in PLOS and ones in Nature Biotech. 
Um, there, ironically, there is a patent on that method. <laughs> Add more injury to insult, or insult to injury there. Right. Although it's extraordinarily narrow and there's a hundred different ways to do it. But um, it, uh, it, it was something that we, our attorneys felt that, you know, you, you had to do in case Myriad came after us. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, well, that's kind of how, that's how IP works a lot of the time anyways. You have to do it so that. Defend yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Once you're in the game, it's hard to get out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what you guys are doing with basically with potentially moving peer review to the blockchain could be changing the game that could actually. I, I think it is. I mean, one, the, the, some of the things you've got to think about in this patent game is when you start up a company, you can't, you can't not have an IP strategy. You just won't get funded. So you got to have a strategy. You got to yeah. decide how much of your money are you willing to put into patents and what types of patents are you going to, you're going to pursue? I, I can explain to you one example we had where we, we invented a DNA sequencer known as a solid sequencer. And that, that patent ended up into uh, split into 30 different patents. They call them divisionals and continuation wow. in parts. So it just got fractured into a, a lot of different inventions. Um, Cause the, the, the U S patent office doesn't like to um, issue patents that are really that have a lot of inventions in them. They they, they want to get their money and they, they get fees for every yeah. set of claims you've put in. So they, they end up um, limiting the number of claims you can have and try to really narrow your inventions down. So you have to file many, many patents. But a uh, long story short, this patent um, estate did go to court and, and went to war with a company called Illumina, who's one of the largest sequencing providers now. And we prevailed in that court case because we 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 did all we did all the IP stuff right. However, the sequencer went to market probably in around 2006. Um, it probably got a, its peak market position of about 35% of the market share in 2008. It then got acquired by, um, by LifeTech um, in 2008. It was like an $8 billion transaction that didn't all go to me. I was a small peon in that equation. But um, it was one of the deciding factors for LifeTech or in vitro at the time buying applied biosystems. Uh, ironically, Applied Biosystems is a company that, that started Solera and had the race to the Human Genome Project before, which is kind of ironic. Ended up getting acquired by the people who gave me an ulcer 20 years ago. Uh, but this, um, this, the, the long story short, these, this sequencer was obsolete before the patents issued, and they probably spent six to ten million dollars. Wow! Wow! So there, there's some lessons in this that, as a startup, you got to be, you got to realize you're playing a patent game where. Um, it greatly favors the incumbents. The incumbents can play this game to the cows come home. In a startup, mm -hmm. you've got to be really careful which things you file on because the attorneys are like 800 bucks to 1,000 bucks an hour. The filing mm -hmm. fees, it's about 20 grand to file one of these things. The laws change halfway through your process. We've had the, the American Inventors Act changed on us one time. The Myriad case where it came and changed all. And each time they change the law on this, your lawyers all come to the table saying, we've got to refactor everything. It's another $10,000, $20,000. Wow. So you suddenly find a lot of your money bleeding out the door for IP. And your investors tend not to do diligence very deep into this stuff. So they just see that you're, you're, you're working on some IP, that's great, but the productivity and the, the, clopes, the, the, the claim scope of this stuff is, is rarely scrutinized the level it should be. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's a dangerous game, uh, but it, 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 you can't not play it. If you don't play it- Well, and that, kind of, that explains why people would go for extraordinarily broad patents too, if they can get them. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then if they get chiseled away later, that's fine. Uh, you know they'll they'll take they'll take claim reductions in a future time and space. They would have already they will have already raised the money they need to get a little bit further in life once they've done that. Yeah. Um, so it is a it, it is a complicated game. But you are seeing 
a lot of companies are realizing that this is too expensive. And if we put that money into R&D and just reiterate it faster, uh, we'd probably be better off. And in some fields, that's true. I mean, Tesla is doing that. I've heard Twitter is doing that to some extent, um, that they want to spend less on, on legal and just put the information public and, and light a fire under everybody. That competition is wow. only six months behind. Uh, so giddy up and reinvent the next thing. Yeah. Wow. I should probably let you go. It's been just over an hour. Wow, it's already been that long. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, we'll have to do this again. Um, before I let you go, could you send me some links? Um, the, the I'll people... send you a link to the, the Nature Biotech paper. Yeah, that, that would be awesome. And then also, if you could just send me a link to where people can go to see your, to see your sequencing of what you, the whole process that you put up on the blockchain. If people oh, want yeah, to look at that. Oh, yeah, the Jamaican lion genome. Yes. Yeah. How, yeah, how do you. I will put that up there. Okay. There's, um, it's, uh, I think if, uh, I'll give you a link, but I think if you Google um, crypto funded genomics or crypto funded public genomics, or something like that, it will pop up, okay. but I'll get you a direct link so you can see that. The, the fun thing about that project is that every experiment we did, we put live, which is really embarrassing. Um, I mean, every day you just put your lab results up there and half the time they're making you look like a fool. Um, but yeah, but you know, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the big complaints about, about medical research, for example, that we don't see the bad results. All we see are the results they want us to see. And so uh, that, that is an ego problem we have in science is everyone is afraid of a retraction. Everyone is actually, I mean, it's publish or perish, right? And if you get a retraction, your career is over. So no one wants to publish something where they're wrong. That means no one is brave enough to experiment uh, in, in public. All that stuff gets buried and they only present what worked and it's a horrible system. And people yeah. need to be more confident that, hey, I make mistakes. I make them all the time. You're will, you're, 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 if you think that you don't make mistakes, I think there's a real problem. Uh, everyone in science does. Uh, and so you might as well be public with it. Instead, everyone likes to hide it and say our, our work is perfect now. And when you do that, you delay releasing information, waiting for things to be perfect. And other people don't learn from it. Well, and over time, it just builds a lack of confidence in research. I mean, even, I think even among the general public, there's sort of this sense that you can't trust what gets published in, in research journals. And um, just generally, there's, the, there's a sort of a growing lack of trust, I feel. No, it's true. And a lot of that's because the retraction rate and the reproducibility is low. The, the, the time, I think, is a big, is a big function there. And um, the conflicts aren't transparent. You don't know who's reviewing these. And right. you don't know where the articles have been rejected before. You don't know if it's bounced to five or six different journals. You don't know if the editors themselves have conflicts. Uh, so there's... Um, uh, now, it's not to say, no, the journals, I, I don't want to completely crush the journals because I'll never be able to publish them again. <laughs> but but they, they are all aware that this needs to change. I mean, their, their system was built when we had to print stuff on paper. That's no longer happening. And the marginal right. cost of right. print things online has gone down to the point that they're really now referees and, and networking people that find good reviewers. And I think if they change their economic model to the point where, where some of the proceeds are going to the reviewers and the reviewers are getting some of the credit on these papers as well, mm-hmm. they're going to have a lot more people volunteer. I mean, I see PhDs driving Ubers. They should be, there should be a market for them to review papers. That would be so much right. more productive than them saying, oh, I've got a, you know, I've got a, I can't make, I only give an $18,000 a year stipend. So I'm going to fill my spare time driving a car. Yeah. It's yeah, crazy. That's nuts. Be automatic car soon. That's nuts. Um, so anyway, the, the journals aren't all oblivious to this. They're all trying to reinvent themselves in different ways. Um, I just think sometimes it's harder for companies to reinvent themselves when they have such a massive revenue stream 
mm-hmm. um, that's been accumulating. The journals have been consolidating over time, right? And so yeah. there's only there's probably like five of them that control it all. And it's very hard for a ship that big to turn on a dime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let you go. Thank you so great. much. Well, thank you. I love talking to you, Brittany. Good yes, seeing you. Yes, it was great. Okay. I'll, All right. We'll do this again sometime. Great. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye.